Welcome to Cream, Eggs and Jam. A podcast for food nerds with show and tell by Elise Bullbrook and Scott Bagnell. We love to cook with cream, eggs and jam and learn from food people who give a damn. So join us each week for thoughts, tips and tricks with guests, recipes and more in the mix. Episode 10, we are 10 weeks into Cream, Eggs and Jam. Scotty Bagnell, we are now officially uh, quite quite the podcast makers, aren't we? Double digits, if we may. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to today's episode. I'm coming to you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm coming to you from Yuggera Country. And this week, like every week, we would like to acknowledge, firstly, the traditional custodians on the land in which we're recording this podcast and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Later in today's podcast, we will be talking with our friend Jess Hodge, who was a contestant on MasterChef Australia with us. She is a wonderful landscape architect and a very, very passionate cook. And she's done this amazing trip all around Australia, which I want to find out. It looks incredible. I've got the travel bug. I want to go and uh, tour Australia and see some of these amazing places that we're so lucky to live in this incredible country. Absolutely, Scotty. Now, if I sound a bit off in this episode, it's because I have a cold. So please forgive me if I'm oh a bit no. nasally, I'm a bit I'm a bit slow, I'm a bit down. Oh no. I have oh the no. flu. It's not the spicy cough, but it is a flu. It's going around. Mm. You know what you need is you need some good soup. Well, it's funny you say that. I have um, just gotten some pork trotters Ooh. from the market. So I will be making ramen. Who am I inspired by? You. (laughs) You posted a beautiful ramen recipe um, that you made earlier in the week and it's inspired me to finally give the Momofuku one a shot. Oh, yes. I am Mm. now on the ramen train and I'm addicted. I did this amazing ramen. It's probably not like textbook traditional. It's from this cookbook that I'm currently obsessed with. I should have got it. Um, Written by Mandy Lee, um, The Mm -hmm. Art of Escapism Cooking. And it's, it breaks all the rules and it follows no tradition and it's inspired by many things. That's fine. Ramen ramen. isn't a traditional food. Ramen is something that's new age Japanese food. It's it's constantly evolving and it, the recipe is very much up to the chef. There's not one recipe for ramen. So wow, it's, it is very, very fine to break rules when it comes to ramen. Thank fun goodness. Facts. <laughs> mm, fun facts. Fun this facts. recipe was so fun to make, but I, you know what? I haven't cooked a long process recipe like this for a while. I used to be obsessed with really technical, complicated recipes because I loved the challenge, but then mm. coming out of MasterChef, everything is quick and fast and what can I do in 60 minutes? Yeah. So yeah. I loved this. It took me about three days to make this ramen recipe and the stock is divine. Like mm. the most simplest stock. It's just chicken bones, chicken neck, and you get onions and you burn them until they're charcoal and you cook the chicken, water, onions, that's it, in a pot for three hours and until the bones almost like disintegrate and then you blend them up and then you cook that like sludgy stock for Which another sounds three gross, hours but 
Like, it, it did look gross. Like, there were several okay. times Andrew gave me a lot of dirty looks. The house was smelling very chicken-y. <laughs> and I, it doesn't didn't look pleasant. But then, <laughs> after six hours, you, strange the, you strain the sludgy mess and you get this beautiful white chicken stock what? that just tastes like liquid roast chicken. Like, the, the uh-huh. taste in this stock is amazing because it's got all the bone and the marrow right. and all of that amazing flavour. So that's why I got a message from you the other night asking about muslin cloth alternatives. Yes. <laughs> yes. I went through so much muslin cloth straining this multiple times to get all yeah. the like fine um, liquids out or fine bones out. And your yeah, suggestion yeah. of a of a nut bag, um, nut milk bag, I think is a very good idea. Yeah, I'm not sure mm. what the commercial kitchen term is for these things. Not, no. I, we didn't use them when I was working at the winery. We didn't use them when I was working at the wine bar. These there things didn't come something. up. Mm. And like you can't sieve this because it's so sludgy that you need to like exude a lot of force to get this yeah. stock out. I but wonder if you, you could do, pass it through like just a cotton tea towel. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, that's, not that's a bad what idea. old ladies would do with like a chicken soup. But this is more fibrous. This is yes. you've blitzed the bones. Yes, but so good. And then you make this pork fat and pancetta mm. and black truffle like lard paste that goes in the bottom of the bowl, which you st- pour the stock over with oh this gosh. highly concentrated kombu. Um, What's in the – there's like a seasoning paste or seasoning syrup that goes in it. Tare. So it's kombu. Maybe. maybe Tare, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Mm. So good. Just salty goodness. Fish <laughs> sauce, kombu, bonito, mm. and shiitake well, mushrooms. And when mm. I saw your picture on Instagram, I saw that your egg had been – you had a soft-boiled egg on your ramen. Jammy and egg. I was like, mmm – that doesn't look like a nitomago egg, like the the Japanese-style ramen egg. But then I thought, no, Scotty's probably done one up. It was a truffle egg, wasn't it, Scotty Bagnall? Yes, it was a truffle mm. egg. Yes. Mm. <laughs> it's so because good. when you do make ramen, you start the stock on day one and you also you start your eggs on day one too. You marinate mm. them. Um, mm. But you you were ahead of the game because it's truffle season. We, to- we spoke yes. about truffles last week. <laughs> yes. Oh, dear. Um, oh, so good. So I'll, I'll go through the process of my stock uh, with you after I make mm. it. I haven't made it yet. But <laughs> we only got the trotters today. We'll probably be eating this come Sunday. But I'm looking forward yes. to it. The oh, ideal yes. is that incredibly fatty tonkatsu ramen. I want yep. to be drinking liquid marrow. That's, that's the ideal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So good. About 5,000 calories a bowl, please. Thank you. That's who <laughs> yes. I am. Are you going to make your own noodles? That's the question. Well, you did, and mm. you are ambitious. Me, <laughs> mm. I so making ramen noodles is tricky. You need to make an alkaline noodle. Did you do that? Did you make alkaline no. noodles? Okay. No, no. This recipe has a bit of a hack, um, which was super interesting. It uses a combination of tapioca flour which gives you the bounce in the chew, plain flour, and it mm. flavours this with this roasted barley tea, 
which gives it this really beautiful nutty color what? and flavor. Um, and then how did you that's find the tea? Oh, that sounds like an effort um, as well. <laughs> it was an effort. I had to go to several Asian grocers, but I found oh it. <laughs> um, but really good flavor. And then it's got egg egg yolks in it, and you blitz it. But the the dough that you get. And mm-hmm. the recipe is great because it talks you through it and it, and it says, look, you mm-hmm. think this is not going to work, but you just have to persist. It's going to come together eventually. Yeah. And it's really dry and crumbly and you sort of knead it in plastic wrap. You let it sit for about half an hour, you knead it again, and it slowly starts to get sticky and then you roll it out and you've got to laminate it a couple of times and it crumbles. But just magically, it then just comes together uh, after yeah. laminating it a few times, but yeah. I had to roll it out, and the dough is so dense that I've actually bruised my hands from oh my rolling gosh. it out. So I don't know what my tip would be to avoid that, but uh, <laughs> so look, it was, it was too worth firm. It. The were beautiful. Too firm for a pasta roller. Is that what you're saying? It it went through the pasta roller, but. You had to basically roll it almost to the thickness and then use mm. the pasta roller just to take it down that little bit more. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm, well, I'm sick. I don't have the energy, you know? Yes, it did take it was, a lot of energy. Yeah, I'm unwell. I need to conserve my stores. Mm. <laughs> yes. I'm going to be – I like – I love recipes that are hands off. I don't mind slow right. cooking. Yes. Um, I don't mind things that take time, but mm-hmm. I've, got, I've got other things to do. Like <laughs> if there's something that is tedious and that I love to do that kind of thing with people, if I have to be mm. by myself these days, I feel like, oh, no, I'm wasting time. I have, well, I've got a, I've got a book deadline. You <laughs> do. More specifically. <laughs> you do. I've recently got an extension, but I can't negotiate any more of them. So we... Right. Uh, yeah, at the moment, me and my relationship with a tedious pasta making, for example, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well, just buy the ramen noodles. They are well, equally right. delicious. <laughs> yes, yes. Scotty, I'm wondering, um, this week on MasterChef, I know Aldo went home on Sunday night. What was yes. the challenge? What happened to him, the poor thing? Yes. Look, it was a, um, a two-rounder challenge, um, which is always difficult. But it was made better because the beautiful Hugh was there. <laughs> oh, the beautiful Hugh. He is the executive chef of Vietnamond and is a 27-year-old bombshell, like Prince Charming lookalike. MasterChef ah. take that absolute <laughs> yes. upper notch as well because they just go to town talking to him, saying he looks like Prince Charming. And he does. How, I can vouch does. for that. <laughs> How does someone look so perfect? I don't know. Mm. But um, it was all of his favourite ingredients under some cloches and you saw the first ingredient but you had no idea what was under the second. So you had to decide whether you cook in round one with the ingredient you could see mm. or take a risk with the ingredient you couldn't see. Mm. Interestingly, um, Aldo went for the ingredient he could see to start with, and that was a condong. Oh, there you Mm. go. Interesting. Um, So Aldo was in the second round with Billy, and who else was there that that didn't go so well in round one? Um, Julie had to cook in round two. (laughs) Oh, wow. And she, she... wanted to see the second ingredient because the first ingredient was lion's mane mushroom, which Mm. I love, 
but she'd never cooked with that before. Oh, so yeah. I think that's a good move. Like if you don't know the ingredient, risking looking what's under the second cloche, you may as well do that. Um, mm. But, yeah, she found herself in round two. Do you know what her second one was, her other ingredient? Um, her second one was golden beetroot. Oh, well, that's probably more friendly for Julie. More friendly. She did a beautiful, yeah. um, like, um, terrine with it. Yeah, beautiful. Very pretty. Lion's veins mushrooms could probably have been used in a similar context. They're absolutely gorgeous. Mm. And mm. in season at the moment, I know that they're definitely out in the wild down here in Victoria right now. Are they really? Yes, yes. Oh. Big foamy looking things. They look like oh, wow. coral. They look like they're white so coral. Beautiful. Yeah, and they're very good for you. You slice them into steaks and you can mm-hmm. marinate them. Yes. And they are an excellent – if you are vegan or vegetarian and you're looking to mimic the flavour and texture of meat, lion's mane mushroom is a good sponge upon mm-hmm. which to add things to flavour your non-meat steak. Yes. There you go. Yes. Anyway. So good. <laughs> ah, so Aldo – Looked like he went home in round two with a cucumber dish. Mm, yes, he had to feature or hero cucumber in his second dish, which mm-hmm. is a hard flavour to hero. Like it's a little bit nondescript and, um, you know, what do you pair it with? It's not going to take over that flavour of cucumber. But his dish was beautiful. It was so stunning on the play. And unfortunately... You know, the reality is this is a competition and both Billy and Aldo's dishes were perfect. It's just Billy's was more perfect on the day. Mm, dear. So mm. Billy had to champion wasabi. Now, I get all of my information from social media because I can't watch MasterChef. We've discussed <laughs> this in previous episodes of Cream Eggs and Jam. You'll just have to tune in and find out why. But uh, <laughs> Scotty fills me in. I'm, I'm wondering, Scotty Bagnall, what would you have preferred, cucumber or wasabi? Well, I was eliminated on a horseradish, which is very similar to wasabi. So I was a bit triggered by this episode when I saw the wasabi. Um, Mm. But that's an interesting question. Wasabi or cucumber? Now, knowing what I know and having time (laughs) to think, I would probably do wasabi. Because it's the same thing with horseradish. Like when I got that in my elimination round, my brain went, blank because Mm. there's just so many things that you're thinking about and the pressure of everything you just have that mind block now every day i have like oh i could have made this and why didn't i do this and i love this dish with horseradish you think about all these things that you definitely could have made but on the day you just freeze and you just go whoa what would you have chosen well i didn't get to cook in the horseradish round that Mm. i sent you home Um, Mm. And on that day, I wanted to make a dessert. And I think I'm kind of similar in that if you did have, if the choice was cucumber or horse or or wasabi or horseradish, wasabi lends itself to dishes that might be a little bit more interesting. Mm. Dare I say it? Yes. Yep. Again, competition setting, you've got to go with your gut. You've got to go with what you think could impress in the moment and what could potentially be better. And I think that wasabi or horseradish, those kinds of ingredients could be a little bit more versatile than a cucumber. But that's not to say 
Aldo didn't do well. There are some excellent cucumber dishes at restaurants here in Victoria, here in Melbourne at the moment. Some of the Mm. most, like, (laughs) one of the most popular things that you can get, uh, I say this because it's probably one of the most Instagrammable dishes, is a cucumber toast from the Carlton Wine Room. Cucumber toast? It's just sliced cucumber on toast with, I think it's like a a creme fraiche, like a seasoned herby creme fraiche. Okay. Anyway... God damn, it is Instagrammable and people are eating it. <laughs> anyway, so I probably would have done the wasabi and used it in a context of a dish that, you know, after challenges, a year later, far, far, far down the track, you think of the things that you would have done, you would have made. And yeah. I actually would have done a dessert. I would have done like a Ooh. honey and lemon and horseradish dessert and I think wasabi could, could Ooh, work yeah. well in it. Um, mm. I make whipped honey, which isn't my recipe. Oh. I ate okay. I ate this in How New do you York. Whip honey. Mm-hmm. Whenever I've travelled overseas by myself, I have dined myself, Scotty Bagnall. I have mm. taken myself out to fancy restaurants and sat alone and had the best time. One of the I restaurants. I can't do that. I oh can't my gosh. do that. I just I feel really weird doing that eating alone. Uh, 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 I, I love wish it. I could. <laughs> it is like a dose of hospitality. It is mm. medicine. Eating with you is very much like medicine. During <laughs> MasterChef, our Saturday morning um, eating out experiences were like that for me. That dose of hospitality when you eat with someone that can be reverent with a meal. It's mm. it's very yes. very soothing, and I find my own company to do that also. So. <laughs> I ate this dessert at a restaurant in New York called Olmsted and the dessert was their signature frozen yogurt with whipped honey. And it was honey that had been whipped with an ingredient called Versa Whip. So you just pop honey into a mixer with a whisk attachment fixed onto it and a little bit of Versa Whip and water and you whip it for like five minutes and you get honey that's like meringue-like. And then you can pipe it to mimic a soft-serve frozen yogurt. No. Yes. What is this Versa Whip? Versa Whip is an emulsifying agent. But it's it's readily available once you know where to find your, um, like, ice cream stabilizers, things like that. Yeah, I've bought it. Not from the supermarket, but, like, the kind of shops where you would buy your ice cream stabilizers from. Okay. Yep. Melbourne Food Company, blah, blah, blah. When you put your spoon through the soft whipped honey and then the frozen yogurt it's like you're having a mouthful of like meringue and the acidity from the yogurt so I probably would have done the sweet honey horseradish um, granita a frozen yogurt and um, maybe like some lemon curd and I think like those flavours remind me of what you have when you have a cold they go well together in that context yes they do (laughs) why not put them in a dessert what if they didn't have Versa Whip in the pantry no they did because I ordered it one day did they I I, I wanted to make it for so long even in the semi semi final when I had to change my dessert because my parsley semi frito wasn't working I was like oh maybe I should just make that frozen yogurt it was a thought in the moment probably should have Mm. oh no (laughs) Okay, moving on. I think we should talk to our guest today, Jess Mm -hmm. Hodge, who was part of our season of MasterChef. 
Yes. We are talking with Jess and our discussion will involve a discussion of uh, Native Australian ingredients. We love using them. We will be flagging some of the issues that are involved in the use of Native Australian ingredients for chefs and consumers. And we want to acknowledge that when we eat or purchase or use Native Australian ingredients, we are connected to people whose food security, food sovereignty um, and whose livelihood, whose human rights have been at risk due to issues within our food system, within Australia's overall landscape since its acquisition. Um, We are very, very grateful to be able to use Native Australian ingredients in the way that we do and we intend to celebrate them in a way that is conscientious. We are joined by the amazing Jess Hodge for our season. Hello, Jess. Thank you for joining us today on our podcast. Hello. Hi, Scott. Hi, Elise. So good to see you. So, so good. I'm really excited to talk to you, Jess, because we haven't really caught up at all about what you've been up to over the past year. Where have you been? What have you been doing? I think that the question probably should be where haven't I been because oh, yes. pretty much since finishing uh, filming for, for our season of MasterChef, I came home back to Sydney, decided I was not going back to work, um, bought a vintage caravan and took off with my family and we, we headed north up the east coast of Australia um, and the COVID situation in Sydney was not great so we just didn't didn't turn back, we kept going. So... It ended up being about just over 10 months on the road, uh, travelled most of the way around Australia, including to the centre, which was fantastic. And sorry, Elise, we miss Victoria, but I spent, we spent a fair bit of time in Victoria um, when we were filming, so, um, but, and it's so close, so I can come back. But um, yeah, so 10 months on the road just exploring Australia, that's what I've been up to. That is massive 10 months in a tiny caravan. With four-year-old twins, yep. yep. Four-year-old <laughs> twins? Yep. Oh we saw goodness. you, Scotty. We yeah. saw you, Scotty, early in the process, and I think that things were pretty calm at that point, but I think we were only about two or three weeks in, so oh, no, we yes. a long way. Yes. <laughs> a long way it was so good to catch up. We went to Spirit House, which is an amazing restaurant on the Sunshine Coast. So beautiful, such a lovely lunch, and one of one of the lasting memories actually of the trip. Oh yay! <laughs> so what did you get up to in ten months? I can't imagine travelling for that amount of time. Like, did you have a plan? Like when you set off, like, did you have a, a, some hot spots that you wanted to hit and a time frame that you had in mind, or was it just like go where the wind takes you? <laughs> <laughs> to, be, <laughs> to be to be super honest we thought we might get to Byron Bay we honestly thought we were heading up the coast maybe go away for a month and then come back to Sydney and work out what to do but coming back to Sydney really was not an option this time last year everyone went into lockdown and we were so lucky to cross the border into Queensland before any of the lockdowns came into place and um, and at that point, we just really were, were feeling our way through it. We didn't know where we were going to end up, how long we were going to be away for. But we we just kept going. And um, both my partner and I were working from the road. I took a little bit of time off just trying to regroup and um, just kind of, you know, 
I needed to process the MasterChef experience for a little while and decide what I what that meant for me moving forward. But um, eventually, we decided that we we had a few points on the trip where that were decision making points. One of those was when we began had, heading west from Cairns. So that was a big deal. We decided that we wanted to go to Uluru and, and see the centre of Australia. And at that point, we also had to decide if we wanted to go north to Darwin and continue our way around the country or head south down into South Australia. And funnily enough, I had a, a very chance meeting of a beautiful woman in a campground in Alice Springs that helped make that decision for me, for us. Um, there's a, a wonderful woman who was a teacher at in a remote Aboriginal community uh, at the border of Western Australia, South Australia and Northern Territory. Um, and she came to chat with us because we were travelling in a vintage caravan and you don't see vintage caravans in Alice Springs very often and there's a very good reason why not. Our <laughs> caravan lasted about another week after that, after that day uh, before it just died. Oh, no. um, but... Luckily enough, we had it. She came and spoke to us. She just bought one. She was from Albany in Western Australia. And she was on holidays, on school holidays. But we began talking about um, bush food, basically, native Australian ingredients, because I was cooking a, uh, a native satay chicken or something along those lines. And I had all of my ingredients out. And she got talking to me and, and began to talk about a cooking school that she was taking her students to uh, in Albany, which was happening in November of last year. Um, and after a bit of a chat, she invited me along. And wow. that really pretty much changed my life, I'd say, that moment, that, that wow. meeting. Um, it meant that we had a few months to get down to Albany. But it also meant that when I got there, I was able to cook with um, some incredible chefs. I got to meet uh, Paul Iskov, who's known as Fervor. Um, I got to meet some incredible students from uh, the most remote parts of Western Australia, some places I didn't even know existed. Um, one group of students came from uh, the Mitchell Plateau, which is 12 hours drive north of uh, Broome. So wow. I didn't even know you could drive that much further from Broome. No, but I thought Broome was um, at the top. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's definitely not. So, um, and while we were there to help facilitate these, these wonderful children in kind of learning about their hospitality industry, um, I learned so much from them. I learned so much from the elders that they travelled with, from the teachers that they travelled with, and just the experience of being on country and cooking with ingredients that were uh, from the southwest of Western Australia just it really just changed my mindset of how to approach food and especially uh, Indigenous Australian food. So meeting Mandy in the caravan park in Alice Springs at, at the time I don't think I quite realised how significant it was going to be. It certainly was a decision-making point where we decided to head north uh, from Alice Springs up to Darwin and, and complete the loop. Um, and it also meant that we travelled into Western Australia. We missed all of the border closures, which was fantastic, and got to experience the West Australian coastline, which I would go back in a flash. But mm. um, I think that just having that, that chance meeting and as in, insignificant as it was at the time, really, it, it really just set uh, my path in, in the world of food, I think, in a direction that I don't think I'll ever be able to come back from. 
That is so amazing. I just, I have this belief that things happen in the world, in life, for a reason. Like, the universe connects you in some magical way. And just that chance meeting that you had made that decision in that exact spot at that exact time, cooking that satay, and yeah. then it changing your life, that is just so magical. I love it. I, I agree with you, Scotty. I think that... Um, yeah, I don't know what, what made that happen. The fact that after, about a week later, we didn't have that caravan anymore. She wouldn't have come to speak to us if wow. we didn't have a vintage caravan. So it's a, it is quite a funny story. It's something I'll look back <laughs> on and be quite grateful for. So, I mean, I probably could have um, sought out some of those connections myself, but it, it all just came to me all at, all at that one time. And it really was something quite special. And then the week actually cooking at the camp with these um these wonderful children and, and their families and, and everyone else that came along was really just a special point in my, I guess, life as a, as a cook. That's amazing. Did it change your approach to using native ingredients? I think all three of us um, developed a love for native ingredients during our MasterChef experience. But yeah. I'm wondering, like, having this firsthand um, knowledge and interaction um, and having the opportunity to cook on country with native people, has that changed your perspective in any way in terms of native ingredients? Like, what was the takeaway from that? When I... So when I started MasterChef, I was drawn to native ingredients purely from my background as a landscape architect. Mm. Um, to me, it just they just made sense to use ingredients that that come from the land that, that we're living on um, from a sustainability point of view, from a environmental point of view. Um, what I didn't quite understand was the social and cultural point of view. Mm. And I think that even while I was away on MasterChef, I don't think I understood that. And at the beginning of the trip, I don't think I fully understood that I was and primarily using native ingredients in my cooking, but mainly as, as flavor, which I mean, there's no problem with that either. They taste delicious and they add a complete different dimension to the food that you cook. But it was through, I think that that moment at that cooking school and really spending time with these, uh, the various people in Albany changed my understanding and appreciation of native ingredients and how what they mean culturally, uh, how significant they are for the communities in which uh, that have nurtured these ingredients over thousands of years um, and the knowledge that, that comes with those ingredients. What that experience enabled or changed, I guess, there was a shift in, a, in, a, in the way I was thinking about ingredients. I was no longer thinking about um, the native Australian ingredients as flavour. I was thinking about them as actual ingredients that could be core to a a dish. So rather than just kind of throwing everything in to try and uh, create a flavour that might be like something else, I was starting to appreciate them for, for what these ingredients were on their in their own right, starting to use more of the root vegetables and the fruits um, and just appreciating what belonged to that part of the country that I was on and, and using what was local uh, and what, uh, and that really also helps with the connection to country, which is something that I'm beginning to appreciate a lot more 
both from a food point of view, but also from a landscape architecture point of view. So something that I'm trying to navigate with uh, in, in both worlds that I'm kind of working in at the moment. And I think that as a non-Indigenous Australian, trying to work out how to do that in the most sensitive way is probably one of the biggest challenges that I'm trying to, to navigate through at the moment. Yeah, there are a lot of statistics out there regarding um, how how many Indigenous-owned Indigenous foods companies there actually are. And as someone that likes to use native ingredients but needs access to them, you know, there's that whole issue then of, well, if I'm not growing them myself, who am I supporting when I purchase them? And what's their motive? Who are they? What, what kind of profiting um, is involved? And is there any kind of rent being paid? Um, I'm, I'm wondering what kind of challenges have you faced in that regard, Jess, um, now that you're back? in Sydney and um, have you come across any particular um, I suppose indigenous food companies that that you would recommend uh, listeners uh, look out for it is there are so many issues there Elisa I don't even know where to begin with that one it's I think the current statistic is something like two percent of um, of indigenous food uh, companies are actually indigenous owned um, which is is quite terrifying when you think about it Um, I think it's something that I'm still navigating through because accessibility is one of the biggest challenges um, and kind of wrestling with being able to source ingredients from uh, a company. And and you do have to do your research to see which ones are actually uh, contributing back to the communities in which the the products are being taken from. Um, And that's not easy at all because uh, when you're working in food, you also need to be very conscious of profit margins and all of those sorts of things, which you don't even, which, which add just another layer to the way that we um, deal and cook with food. Um, I work for a company now called Yerubingan, which is an Indigenous design um, company, de- design advisory company. Um, and I work very closely with the CEO um, when I'm developing recipes and developing uh just thoughts around this um, and trying to navigate all of the things that you've discussed with a First Nations lens. So I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm forming opinions myself, but I also have want to have a sounding board to make sure that everything that I'm doing is, um, is valid and mm-hmm. uh, not, not offensive. And uh, I know that there are people in the industry that are, are very protective of their IP and their knowledge. And I, I totally appreciate that. Um, and again, I want to work with communities to, in a way that I can best support them. Um, and that's not easy when you're starting out at all. Mm. So I think that there, there is a shift. There's a big shift. And I think as uh, non-Indigenous chefs, we just need to be mindful of where we're sourcing ingredients from um, and then how we talk about I guess using those ingredients in our cooking so Mm. I'm not setting out to educate anyone uh, on anything I I am simply trying to use ingredients because I believe in them from a flavor and a uh, a point of view that they can really elevate cooking uh, Mm. and and create different flavors and different uh, approaches to to food and and challenge the way people also think about what they're eating. Mm. Um, 
but I don't want to, you know, begin educating people on on how things were, were used once before or um, or culturally what that what their significance is. So mm. um, that's a very long winded answer, uh, <laughs> and I think that's because yeah. there's there's no simple answer no, for not that. At all. Yeah, I know. I was I was actually quite excited. I walked into a local um, big chain supermarket the other day, and I saw um, some Indigo Earth products uh, sitting on the shelf, and some Mabu Mabu products sitting on the shelf, um, yeah. which just makes me so happy for those two women. Um, uh, I met with uh, Sharon of Indigo Earth in Mudgee, and I know that she has been just working in the food industry for for so many years without the recognition that she deserves, and um, it, it's great to see, you know, First Nations products sitting on shelves uh, as opposed to some other big company trying to, to flog their products um, in a commercial sense. There are so many different perspectives. You know, there are people who believe in in the intellectual property law protections that can be associated. There are people that believe that that can be another white hegemonic construct imposed on on Indigenous culture. So there's there are so many so many contrasting, so many um, contentious issues with it. Um, you know, if you've got the sensitivity that, that you've got, Jess, if you've got the understanding that it's an area that is delicate, but also an appreciation that there can be conservation through consumerism, um, you know, we, we should be eating it. We should be, we should be celebrating so. it perhaps. Yeah. I think so. And if that then leads to a shift in the way products are sourced or empowering uh, or enabling communities to uh, I don't want to use the word commercialize but 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 sell their products that are growing on their country I think mm. that that would be a great outcome mm. um, through my landscape work we are actually uh, early days on many master plans within the Sydney basin area trying to um, embed uh, native um, native I guess, social enterprise within those master plans so that the community can come to site uh, and they can, whether they decide to grow food that can be then sold commercially, but they have space on, on that master plan or within that site to, uh, to, to, to do these things themselves. So um, it, it's, it's very difficult, mm. but um, again, I think it's that sensitivity. And in the same breath, I've met so many people around Australia who are so excited that uh, that we're interested in learning about the ingredients that grow on this country, mm-hmm. um, and that we want to use them in our food as well. And and so many people who are so generous with their knowledge, um, and I think that I I just try and respect that in the work that I'm doing. I'm not trying to own it. I'm not trying to um, to to take uh, credit for any of it. I just want to. I do want to showcase it and I, would, I love being able to expose more people to the beautiful flavours that, that come from the plants that grow on this land. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned education is so important in this in terms of, and, you know, it's educating people and in a range of different areas. Have you found, you know, where do we start in terms of, improving the education around native ingredients and access to native ingredients and how to use them have you found any any good references any good websites or cookbooks or how do we start that process 
I think, again, it needs to be First Nations-led, Scotty. I think that mm. um, I, just this morning I was looking at uh, doing a walk on country with a local uh, Aboriginal group. This was down on the south coast of New South Wales. Um, find your local Aboriginal land council. Mm. Find a local uh, nursery. In Sydney, there's a couple. Um, I'm now living on the northern beaches and there's a place called Bush to Bowl, which is Indigenous-owned, and they do... Uh, bush food walks effectively um, and then there's also Indigigro in Sydney and there'd be others all around the place um, as I said what I've, what I've found is um, people are actually very generous with their knowledge and they do want to share this information and I think it's important to go to the source I don't I think that having sec- getting secondhand information um, or people trying to teach you how to cook um, with these ingredients, you're not going to be getting genuine um, and and necessarily culturally appropriate kind of information from them. Mm. doesn't mean it's not going to taste good or or be right, but I think that it is important to to go to the source if you can. Mm. Um, You know, there's some fabulous cookbooks out there as well, but again, just look at who the authors are. So there's the... um, I'm about to go to the Flinders Ranges actually to be involved in the Kwandong Festival, which is run by the guys at Wandu, which is awesome. So that's, um, it is partly Indigenous owned, Mm -hmm. um, but there's certainly a lot of fantastic uh, knowledge in in their books. Um, And again, this is going to be an opportunity for me to cook with Indigenous chefs um, work alongside them, learn about the specifically the Kwandong, but we'll be mm. cooking with all, a range of different ingredients and, um, again, celebrating uh, the Kwandong, which is a very – it's a beautiful fruit, um, but celebrating uh, that in this fest- this special festival, which is in Corn, which is part of the Flinders Ranges. That sounds so incredible. Cool. I've only just yeah. realised in the down the back of my place, there's a, a creek that runs along, um, and it is full of kwandong trees, blue kwandongs. Blue, so I was yeah. doing a walk the other day, and there was just the footpath was covered in blue kwandongs. They're literally like five metres from my house. I'm like, this is amazing. <gasps> is the season so I don't know now. what to do with them. When will they be ready? <laughs> The season, the blue Kwandong season must be about now because I was foraging for them in uh, North Queensland about this time last year, a bit later. So um, I'd never cooked with blue Kwandongs before, but I I cooked them down and turned them into a bit of a, like a chutney or a jam. Uh, They're quite different to the red Kwandongs. They're much more citrus in flavour and... Mm. um, I paired it with a burrata and it was it was very <laughs> Oh yeah. Okay, I'm going foraging in my backyard. <laughs> Whereas the red quandongs are that's quite tart but not citrusy and they are more peachy in okay. in their flavour. So, so cool. and and can be they're probably a bit more versatile in terms of using them in sweet foods. So very, very interesting. I think I'm going to eat a lot of Kwandong pies and I can't wait. And oh. it's, it's going to be quite, quite fun again to work with professional chefs that are, um, that just are working in this world. And, you know, I'm, I'm still learning. I'm, le- I think I'll be learning 
forever when it comes to to these ingredients and I'm quite happy to do that. Yes. Yes. Between the three of us, we each live in very different climates. Um, Mm. Scotty's up in the the tropics of (laughs) Queensland, (laughs) not not the complete tropics, but tropical North Queensland, (laughs) tropical tropical Queensland. Um, Jess, you're in New South Wales, I'm in Victoria. I'm wondering if there are any uh, native plants that you would encourage home gardens to include Mm. and is there anything in particular that would suit a range of different climates or perhaps there's something that would suit Scotty's backyard more than mine and something that would suit my backyard more than Scotty's (laughs) an edible recommendation of course please Uh, I, you know what is fantastic about native um, plants is that they're actually quite adaptable so they are versatile so of course, there's going to be things that will grow uh, better in, in some places compared to others. But um, generally speaking, there are things that will grow everywhere. So up, up sort of on the northern north coast of uh, New South Wales, you get things like finger lime uh, that will grow up near you to Scotty. Mm. Um, river mint and those sorts of things. I've just learned, I was wondering why my river mint looked dead in my backyard and I just discovered that it's deciduous so you think that as a landscape architect I would have clued on that things that go brown in winter probably are deciduous but (laughs) I think up your way they probably wouldn't be um at least they probably wouldn't do so well down near you I've seen Um, it I don't I don't know how young the plant was though you know sometimes when someone puts something in and it does quite well for the first month or so yeah. yeah, there's a um, community food justice farm near me that has river mint. That's oh, why fantastic. I, I, I don't have it growing, but I was thinking maybe it could be a good idea, but maybe you're saying it might not be. I don't know. Hydrogen spring, I think. So, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's – what else do I have? The myrtles kind of grow most places. Oh, yeah. So lemon myrtles, obviously one that everyone knows about, but there's cinnamon myrtle, there's – um, and nice myrtle, which is just beautiful, both of them. Um, I've just recently heard about a, a plant called a curry myrtle, and it's oh, wow. just like a curry leaf, but it's a, it's a native tree. I, c- I couldn't I tell you the botanical name because I'm the worst landscape architect around, but um, <laughs> I, I need to get my hands on one and, uh, and, and just try it in place of curry leaves because I think that would really round out my – I love making native curries, and that would mm. just really top Sounds um, so good. There's, I mean, warrigal greens grow everywhere. Um, mm. Things like arcala and pig face grow everywhere. Mm. Saltbush seems to grow everywhere except for Sydney. I can't find it. I mean, here, it, I think that that's just more a function of Sydney being such a developed city. So, wow. um, whereas you don't have to go far out of Melbourne to find saltbush on the beach and mm. everywhere around Australia, for that matter. Mm. Yes. There's some things that are a little bit more complicated to grow, like like quandongs are, are, are much more complicated. They're semi-parasitic and they they you know they need to be you know loved and nurtured. Um, and yeah, I mean there, there's just so many, and there's so many plants that you wouldn't even realise were edible, but mm. they are. So, yes. um, I mean, there's the obvious things that fruit um, and there's the obvious things like mint that are like a herb that you can pick, but mm. then there's there's so many other things like uh, this will only, I guess, it appeal to the listeners that, that know their plants, but things like lamandra, which you see basically park, uh, planted along roads and in car parks, um, you can actually chew on the, the root of the lamandra. It's something that I've specified on projects for years and years without realising that 
it was edible. Oh, wow. I've also recently come across a native lime, which I didn't know existed until recently, and I was just gifted a bag of them from a beautiful friend who came to uh, my dinner the other night. So there's just it, – it's endless. It truly is. And when you travel around Australia, the species that you find will that are, that are more prolific will be different everywhere. So Central Australia, you'll find the bush tomatoes. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's – it, it is place specific, but there are those kind of the warrior plants that will grow anywhere. Uh, the one, the last one I'll mention is the um, the native raspberry, which Ooh, yeah. uh, is indigenous to uh, northern Queensland, but it is weirdly adaptable and can grow most places. So wow. it's just um, just like a European raspberry. I don't know at what point in evolution it's split, but they're so similar. They're just a little wow. bit less sweet and they're the most beautiful fruit that you'll come across and um yeah there's there's people up in the um up in mariba which is in the atherton tablelands that are that are growing them and it's just amazing oh wow you used many beautiful native ingredients in a dinner you recently held i'm wondering jess if you could walk us through your menu what was it like unfortunately scotty and i weren't able to come but we would love to live vicariously through your wonderful descriptive language (laughs) um yes so just last week i had my first ever pop-up dinner so i'm I'm very lucky to know some people in the hospitality world in sydney and they um basically let me take over their kitchen in their mexican restaurant in darlinghurst last week um i was so nervous but um it was it was such a fantastic experience for me um, as it was a Mexican restaurant, I wanted to not divert too far from their their branding mm. and their theme. So the restaurant's name is La Farmacia on Stanley Street. But I also wanted to bring the Jess touch to the dinner. So we landed on a five-course degustation, which was, um, and I don't want to say the F word being fusion, um, <laughs> but it was effectively a blend of uh, Mexican and Austra- with Australian native ingredients. They work so well together. And if anyone remembers back to my signature dish that got me the apron on MasterChef, it was yes. actually a Mexican dish. That um, And at that point, I was just dabbling in, in native. So it, it, I did use some in that dish, but I just had the opportunity to elevate that last week. So um, five courses, everyone arrived to a plate of fried uh, saltbush sitting on their, their tables, which had uh, tahine, which is a... Mexican seasoning and I think that that really set the tone for the night so everyone it was it was like someone had just walked out to the salt bush uh, bush in their backyard fried it and put it on the plate so everyone was just encouraged to, to pick the leaves it wasn't presented in any sort of fancy way but um that really I, I, th- I think it was depicting the um that blend of the two cultures um Something that I've always loved is seafood, and mm. uh, Australia has some very uh, beautiful seafood, and, and I tend to cook a lot with it just because um, it's familiar. It's also it can be sustainable and um, it's so beautiful. So started with a barramundi tostada. So you you hear about cured fish a lot. Not often do we use barramundi, but mm. uh, that was cured in a um, a pepperberry and bush tomato mix. So for those who don't know, bush tomato, it actually, it's a very savory flavor. It actually has um, 
I guess, a flavor profile very similar to Vegemite. So, um, so it's quite mind-blowing. I actually used a little bit of Vegemite in that one too, just to elevate that, that flavor. But um, I, I wanted to use ingredients that you, you people would be surprised by. So that, that was one example. Uh, the, the next course was a, um, an agua chili, which is quite a common Mexican dish, but rather than using chilies, I use pepperberry. So pepperberry is a bit like session pepper um, in that it creates this very kind of warming kind of uh, chili kind of, it, it develops slowly when you're eating it. So you, you take a first mouthful and you're like, that, that has no spice at all. And then over time it begins to develop and, um, and it can, you know, don't get it on your fingers because it will, it'll burn your, your eyes if you rub them. Oh, so no. it's just like... <laughs> Um, but it also brings this beautiful color. So I paired that with watermelon. So the purple of the pepperberry, the pink of the watermelon was quite a stunning dish. Um, and that was served with prawns, which is again, quite a classic Mexican thing. Um, tacos, very Mexican. Um, and it was one of my first real experiences cooking with emu. So, um, emu's not super accessible, uh, to the majority of people, but there are some game butcheries in uh, Sydney. So I was able to source some, some emu and I made that in an al pastor style. So very thinly sliced emu um, with some pineapple and, and the flavors that you normally get in al pastor. Mm. Um, and also a wallaby barbacoa. So slow cooked wallaby shanks um, that was, were cooked in uh, the native spices and then served with the consomme, which is quite traditional from a um, in a Mexican sort of uh, setting. I remember being in Mexico City. We were invited to a family's house and they served their barbacoa with consomme, um, and it was their oh, wow. their hangover uh, cure. Effectively, it was a Sunday, <laughs> Sunday morning meal. So, oh my gosh, um, yum. yeah, and then, oh, gosh. We then I served a, a kangaroo asada, which is basically just grilled kangaroo, which was just beautiful, um, if I do say so myself. And <laughs> my octopus, which was the my signature oh, octopus, um, along with some elote, which is uh, corn served with uh, a compound, a smoked compound butter with which had local honey and some finger lime in it. So really, just trying to complement flavors and. Um, and that smokiness, the earthiness of, of all of those ingredients. Um, and then dessert was a uh, gelatin wax granita and a strawberry gum uh, horchata, which was effectively set like a panna cotta. So um, a uh, ancho chili wattle seed caramel sauce. So yeah. in total, you know, it was a five-course degustation. I think I worked out that they were 10 dishes in total. So that worked out to be like 800 dishes. How did you find navigating through service? Because that can be a very intimidating experience. Where were you? Were you at the past? Were you cooking? What, what was it like? That makes it sound like this kitchen was organised that we had at no. <laughs> I, was working, I was working with um, some of the chefs at La Farmacia. So I, it was my, my concept and, and I uh, sort of, you know, led the prep, but I, during service, I was very much guided by the head chef at La Farmacia, who uh, is obviously 
experienced in in doing dinners such as this so um, and I'm so grateful because I would have just been a mess it was a very small kitchen um, and with so many dishes and so many uh, you know just mapping out the tables when I was on MasterChef I was actually eliminated after the first service challenge so I didn't get to experience it like like some of you guys who, who stayed on a bit longer um so it was my first true service um and we had two sittings the first sitting we were running about half an hour behind mm. um which turned out not to to matter so much because everyone just had a few drinks while they were waiting for the second sitting and the set, second sitting went perfectly so I think it just shows that yeah. practice makes perfect and <laughs> yes yes we got, we got in the swing of things by the second round so Absolutely. um it was a challenge, but gosh, it was a buzz at the same time. So, so much fun. Real life service with, with chefs is better than a MasterChef challenge. I'm just putting that out there. The <laughs> service challenges in MasterChef weren't like real life service at all. They were horrible. we weren't guided we weren't shown what to do it was make it up as you go and those of us that had like a natural instinct did well but when you are given an opportunity to work in a kitchen with chefs that do this for their profession you learn actual tricks of the trade that like, you're like, why didn't I realise this? Well, it's because you don't do it for a living. Um, exactly. Yeah, there's there's incredible knowledge to be passed on in an environment that learning can happen in. MasterChef was not a learning environment. It was a sink or swim environment. It was so. a reality TV show. Yep. So we, <laughs> and we were all contestants yeah. willingly. Yeah. So. Off you go. Fun. Yeah, no, no, no. for us. No, the 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 reality of hospitality is is so different. Um, MasterChef creates the illusion of of hospitality being wonderful, blah 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 blah. But it's not even an example of what it's like. Um, g- given your recent experience in a commercial kitchen, is it a space that you love? Is it a space that you can see yourself doing more? Uh, pop-ups um, in or what what does that world hold for you now I'm at the point in my life where I'm I'm now trying to navigate how I can move more into food so food for me has always been a um, about stress release and mindfulness and coming mm. back to Sydney and I've, I've gone straight back into my work as a landscape architect and albeit I'm working in a, a much different space um in kind of in a world that's blending my the indigenous food with landscape blah 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 but um that last week's dinner just cemented that I need to be doing more of that because the joy that it brought me was like unparalleled to to what I'm doing um in my my career as a landscape architect Mm. so yes the short answer is yes there's going to be more um I'm looking at a something a little bit more permanent. I won't uh, drop too many details yet until I (laughs) confirm, but just follow me on Instagram and you'll see what's happening. Um, There will probably be more dinners similar to the one last week as well. So, um, and that's something I definitely want to be doing, but for me, there's always going to be this kind of background of, of social cultural landscape, um, sort of underpinning everything I do and hopefully I'll find that balance between 
food and and working in this world as a landscape architect. I love talking with Jess and catching up with her um, over this podcast feels like a bit of a tease. I want to eat her food. I want to go to Sydney, Scotty. I know. I really wish I could have made it to that dinner. It sounds amazing, but I'm sure she's going to have more. And the next one, you and I need to be on a plane and there, I reckon. Yeah. I think we also need to acknowledge that Jess is such an inspiration. I'm so jealous that she's been able to explore her creativity in a way that she finds so rewarding. I want that happiness in my life. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm so in awe of her creativity and the way that she approaches food in such a considered way, I think is beautiful. And she's such a lovely person. And I'm so glad that we got to talk to her. Yes. I might make a panna cotta now. She's got me. Wa- she's got, <laughs> she's got yes. me wanting wanting to make a delicious panna cotta. I actually have some mm. indigi Indigi Earth products in my pantry. Oh, gorgeous! So, Jess, you have inspired me in ways that you may not have realised. I mm. have now got plans to make a panna cotta using some indigi Earth products that I have in my pantry that I purchased from Sharon, and I might also use. An ingredient I received in the mail. <laughs> what um, did you receive? Is this, this show and tell? This is my show and tell. Ooh, I wonder what it could be. I also <laughs> wonder what it could be. <laughs> I received an email from the Australian Chestnut Co. And That was just I a thought, way of putting you off the scent. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I haven't ordered any chestnuts. I haven't given the Australian Chestnut Co. my mailing address. This is a surprise delivery. Oh, I thought, no, a friend has been involved. <laughs> I received a delivery today. Mm. And this was the box. Oh, the box says Mountain Yuzu. <laughs> and immediately, who else would send me anything other than Scotty Bagnall? who is the one and only person I know who is a yuzu enthusiast. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. So is is it a box box. of yuzu? It's, well, I open the box. I'm like, oh, it's yuzu. And it is not yuzu. (laughs) It is not. I call Scotty and I'm like, so I received something in the mail. Is this you? He's like, yeah, what was it? Anyway, (laughs) they're beautiful bergamot. Beautiful, beautiful. And they, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to use these. Thank you so much, Scotty. This is a wonderful surprise. Now I have to send you something that's just as exciting. I don't know (laughs) what it's going to be because this is is unreal. It's a gorgeous box. There are three, six, nine, twelve, what, twelve or fifteen bergamot in this box. And I've never worked with them before. I don't even know what I'm going to be slicing into. Ooh, never. This is exciting. Never. They're so they rare. That. Like you never mm. see these. Like Yuzu has started filtering into like Asian supermarkets and stuff during Yuzu season. You could probably find them. I have never seen fresh bergamot ever anywhere apart from Jane's amazing farm at Yuzu Mountain Yuzu. So you like pressing my nose into this fruit. It's like <laughs> smelling. An incredibly citrus heavy Earl Grey tea. That's yes. what it reminds me of. Oh, yes. 
and a, a slice of this in an Earl Grey tea right now for you could be very good. Bit of honey, that a slice of fresh bergamot, Earl Grey tea. Oh my mm. god! There are um, preserved um, fruits in honey at my local Asian grocery shop in their tea section. Ooh, They've got yes. big, big jars of things like. Um, mm-hmm. Quince in honey, for example. I'm yes. wondering if I could chop up some, or maybe one or two, and just put it into a jar of honey and just see how how long it sits. Maybe maybe just yes. the rind. I'll infuse some rind. honey with bergamot. I do rind. that with yuzu, and it's insane. Like in finely the honey? sliced up. <gasps> yes, finely yes. sliced up yuzu in the honey. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. I have never tried it with bergamot. I, I might julienne the rind. Oh, julienne yes, the rind. And then that. I can use it in my Earl Grey or like mm-hmm. as an extra citrusy burst. Another idea is to make like a lemon crisp biscuit. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. oh my God. I'm just so excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely like a lot of flavour in the rind. It's very similar to yuzu. Mm. Like the, the main fragrance is in that rind. And if someone's never, it's hard to describe the flavour of a bergamot. Like it's quite Mm. floral and it's probably like vanilla, um, a little bit of like almost lavendery sort of floralness. If you're an Earl Grey drinker, the smell of this fruit will make you salivate. Mm. I love an Earl Grey. It's like a luxury tea for me because it's a tea that I've drunk in my adulthood. It's a tea that I've chosen. I buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Me, the adult that buys her own tea. (laughs) 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 We never had it in the house growing up. So it's a luxury. Yeah, I love it so much. Oh, thank you. And the juice is really yummy too. I don't find it has as much flavour in the juice, but it's super citrusy and sour and it's divine. I also want to bathe in it. You know they do that with yuzu. They put like whole yuzu fruits in the bath. Yes. That's a thing, so. (laughs) I have a book. Um, it's it's a book of sacred bath recipes. Oh, and yes. It gives you recipes for adding different herbs or mm-hmm. um, uh, infusion ingredients into your bathtub. <laughs> yes. Imagine all the wonderful things in a lush bath bomb, for example, but you just, like, grab them yourself and add them to the bath. That is... What this what this cookbook is about? <laughs> I oh. love this. Maybe oh we need an episode on bath infusions. Oh, I can talk about bath. I actually worked at Lush when I was eighteen <laughs> to about 20, 20, 22, 23. So we, yeah, I do love a good bath. Oh. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Scotty. I'm so happy about this. I have to get you something. You're very welcome. If you're listening no, and. If you know something that's growing in Queensland right now that I should get delivered to Scotty's house, <laughs> send me a DM on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Help me out. <laughs> oh, Andrew, if you know anything that Scotty wants, <laughs> or maybe I need to get something shipped up from Melbourne. That could oh, be also yes. an idea. Mm, well, they thoughts. come from Melbourne, so I've shipped the Melbourne things to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. What's your show and tell? Look, my show and tell, I don't have any, like, I ate all my ramen. That would have been good show and tell. But (laughs) I do have 
two of my favourite cookbooks mm. um, for native ingredients, and Jess actually touched on both of these. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought these would be really good to share because if you're wanting to cook with native ingredients, mm. I think these two texts are fantastic in terms of learning a little bit about the native produce and giving some examples of um, how to cook with them. So the mm-hmm. first one is this beautiful um, book by Wandu Mai, um, Good Food, and it is a beautiful book written by Damien Colthard and Rebecca Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing cookbook on native ingredients, and I love it so much, and they're doing some really fun things um, around the place. Uh, highly recommend that one. And the other one, and I'm so jealous that Jess got to cook and experience this, is the um, Fever or Fever um, by Paul Iskoff. And this one is amazing. So this is the chef that Jess actually um, did some experience with in her travels. And it's got one of my favourite little recipes, which I love to make. I don't know whether you can see Sandalwood this. nut crackers. These Ooh. sandalwood nutcrackers are one of my favourite things. They're super simple. They use tapioca. Um, so the tapioca pearls that you just boil in water um, hmm. and creates this, like, really sticky mess. <laughs> and you um, roast up some sandalwood nuts, finely slice them, and then you mix them through the tapioca, spread it on a baking sheet, and you dehydrate it, um, and you dry it out um, really super thin. Then you mm. deep fry it, and it's like prawn crackers. Oh my god! And then hello. you can do all sorts of yummy little salty um, dressings on top. I do like a faux bacon one, which has got all sorts of yummy, like smoked mm. paprika and salt and things like that. And it's Yum. like this beautiful little prawn cracker. Delicious! Ah, oh, you might need to send me mm. that recipe. I don't have that book, and I have. I think oh, I have all the ingredients. I have oh, some sandalwood nuts that I've stashed since MasterChef and I don't know ah. if they have an expiry date. <laughs> they ah. probably do. I need to use Oh, them. no. Well, mm. make these. Like, the, the hardest mm. part is just dehydrating, but it just takes time. So there's no yeah. labour. No, beautiful. So that's good. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for your show and tell, Scotty. I think that something that was really valuable that Jess mentioned is knowing your author. Um, mm. When you... Uh, buying any book that's a really good piece of advice you do your research about who's written the book understand what their expertise is um that gives you a little bit more confidence in in what you're actually going to be absorbing so that's um a lovely piece of advice from our friend jess scotty it's been wonderful talking with you today I have thoroughly enjoyed it, as always. I hope you feel better next week. Have a good lie down, a cup of hot bergamot tea, Mm. and I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Cream, Eggs and Jam. I'm Elise Pulbrook, and you can find me on Instagram at Elise underscore food person. And I'm Scott Bagnall, and you can find me on Instagram at SSBagnall. If you'd like to send us your show and tell, you can email us, scottyandelise at gmail.com. Or if you'd like the visual experience of this podcast, you can find us on YouTube at Cream Eggs and Jam. Have a great day. Happy baking.